The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, we're going to continue of our study in love in 1 Corinthians 13. And then on the back, uh, we're going to be nearing the finish line. We're going to be doing, uh, hopefully, finishing up verses 6 and 7 today. As we begin a study of 15 descriptions pictures, working definitions of love and action from a biblical point of view. And we didn't want to rush through it at all because love is the priority. It's the greatest Christian virtue. Jesus said that. He made that clear that it fulfills the law. We read that last week. What fulfills the entire law of God? It is loving God and loving your neighbor. And only a person who knows God personally through relationship of Jesus Christ can fulfill that divine mandate. And only when a Christian is being obedient in God's will can they attain to that level of love as well. Actually, before we look at First Corinthians 13, I want us all just to look by way of reminder at Galatians chapter 5. Uh, before we look at the final descriptions of love, Galatians chapter 5, where Paul's talking about the life of a Christian and how we have a civil war in our soul. We have sin living in us as Christians. Sin, the principle of sin, lives in us. It's always there. Sometimes maybe it's dormant, um, but it's always there. And sin will be living in us until we die or until Jesus comes and transforms our body. So we have to resist that sin that's living in us as Christians and overcome it. And we also have the Holy Spirit living in us because God owns us and He put His Spirit in us. And so that's what Paul's talking about. Galatians 5, Romans 7, this civil war that every Christian has where this nagging enemy called sin that lives within and weighs us down and constantly trying to harass, trip us up. And yet we know in our mind what pleases God, obedience, and he empowers us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so you get literally the civil war of the soul is what Paul's describing. And he, he uses the terms of the living in the flesh or living in the spirit, walking in obedience and submission to the Holy Spirit or walking in disobedience as a Christian in submission to the desires of the flesh from the sin that lives within. So he very graphically describes what that is like. So as you read Galatians 5, maybe your devotions this week, 16 and following, and you see this civil war or this battle going on on the inside, hopefully that resonates with you and, and you realize, wow, I, yeah, I have that battle. Because that's your biography. It's my biography if you're a Christian. Um, talks about the flesh, but deeds of the flesh, and then he transitions into the fruit of the Spirit. So that's what I want you to look at, Galatians 5.22. He says, but in contrast to the deeds of the flesh that even Christians are vulnerable to, when we're disobedient, contrast to the deeds of the flesh, sinful behavior, there is, positive side, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. The byproducts that come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of producing these godly attitudes, primarily here, but also godly actions in the life of a Christian. In other words, we can't produce these on our own. We can't conjure them up with human strength or just sheer willpower. 
It has to come from a supernatural source, and that is the Holy Spirit living in you and living in me as a Christian. And we need God's help. We need the Spirit to produce these in our life. And we also need to be walking in obedience. And we also need to be in God's Word, reading Scripture and meditating on it. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses uh, to convict us and help us walk in obedience. And so he describes the fruits of the Spirit. These attitudes, these godly attitudes, and he says, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Love comes first. It is the priority. It is the main characteristic that will describe a true believer or someone who follows Christ and knows Christ. Jesus Christ was love incarnate and all that that means. So the fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in your life is love. So if you're walking in obedience to the Spirit as a Christian, then you will have a capacity to walk and live out your life with the right attitude uh, with this fruit called love. And also you will have joy deep in your soul. And it's not continual. It's, it's like moment by moment, day by day. Some days you won't have be experiencing experientially, subjectively, emotionally joy. But... You need to keep pressing and asking the Holy Spirit to give you joy even in the midst of hard times. So the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So just a reminder that these virtues come from a supernatural source. It is the Holy Spirit of God who lives in every believer and they are energized uh, by us being in the Word of God, in Scripture, having our mind and our hearts full of the truth of God's Word, and also when we have a submissive attitude to God and His Word, and also um, when we are encouraged by other believers to walk and live this way. Uh, so uh, let's go back now to 1 Corinthians 13, because we need to keep that in mind. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, delineates these first 15 virtues of love, and we need to be reminded we can't do these on our own. We need God's help. So let's go ahead and look at these. Paul, um, he's talking about love in the midst of proper way to view spiritual gifts and proper way to use your spiritual gifts. Love is the priority is this point. Lord willing, our next time we're going to wrap up chapter 13 as he goes back to spiritual gifts relative to this love that he's just described. Um Last week we picked up on verses 4 and 5. Now we're going to look at verse 6 of these attributes of love. But before we do look at verse 6 and 7, just a reminder, stop, pause. How did you do last week? Answering in your own mind and your own heart, especially as we're preparing for communion. How did I do as a Christian with having a long fuse? Having, and that's the first one. Love is patient. Patient with other people. Sometimes what I would perceive as difficult people in my life and many times they live in your own home did you have a long fuse towards them this week godly patience christ-like patience or did you again fly off the handle with your kids and get provoked and have a burst out of anger how did you do with being kind we need to be reminded of all of these uh, how do we do with being jealous and refraining from that um, not bragging, not being self-centered, not having a prideful, arrogant attitude about ourselves, uh, seeing ourselves more important than other people. Uh, also, we talked about not acting unbecomingly or rude or inappropriately in superfluous, offensive ways around people and 
breaking proper decorum and protocol and those kind of things. Um, one of the most challenging ones, I think, uh, verse 5, how do we do with not seeking our own and being selfish? Because that comes so naturally being self-centered, what I want. And last week we were reminded not to be irritated or provoked. Love isn't easily provoked. And then the last one we concluded with, powerful one, uh, true love, biblical love, Christ-like love, doesn't keep a ledger of written offenses in your mind. In other words, you don't hold on to things. You don't hold on to grudges. Like Jesus, you know how to forgive. You forgive and then the key, forget, as far as the East is from the West. If you didn't forget about it, you didn't grant forgiveness. And Paul uses this metaphorically um, when he uses these ledger terms. Don't write people's sins against you down on a piece of paper metaphorically. In other words, don't remember those offenses. Get rid of them. Forgive, 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 forgive. As Jesus told Peter. What's even worse than uh, violating that metaphorical usage of it, of keeping sins in your mind, is, is literally writing them down. Sometimes Christians do that as an excuse of, that's my spiritual journal. Really? Well, if you're writing a spiritual journal and you've got sins committed against you in your journal, then you need, or your spiritual diary, you need to rip those pages out, trash them, cast them as far as the east is from the west. That's what this verse literally is saying. So that was a great reminder. And then we looked at the parable of Jesus. So let's go on now. These last virtues of true biblical love, verses 6 and 7. And I'll just read verses 6 and 7, the beginning of verse 8. Paul goes on and says, uh, love does not. Again, he's what love is not. He's describing the opposite of biblical love. Love does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Um, so this is one compound description of love, two parts to it, and they are antithetical to one another or complement one another. We'll describe that in a second. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So let's go ahead and look at those as we continue our study in biblical love. Just by way of reminder, Paul is writing a very specific descriptions of love. I believe that Jesus modeled in his life that we can see in the Gospels, that Paul also modeled in his life of ministry, and also he chooses these very specific words of areas of love where the Corinthians were not doing these things, or they were violating them. So they're very specific to the Corinthian congregation as he's kind of assessing and diagnosing a church that he planted and that he pastored for a year and a half, and now he's looking back and giving them a rebuke. Uh, here's all the things you're doing that are not loving. So, and love's the priority. So we got to rein it in, amend our behavior, get back on track, honor the Lord. Let's, let's just simplify things. We got a complicated scenario here in the church, but let's just start with the basics. Let's just show Christ-like love to one another. Really. It's really that simple. And then he goes on to, to show very specifically so they're not confused or so they don't miss the point, or so that they can't make an excuse, he delineates very specifically areas of love that they're violating. That's what he's been doing every step of the way. So let's go ahead and look, verse 6, uh, areas where the Corinthians in particular were violating biblical principles of love, especially when they came together in the church gathering. Paul says, True biblical love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather it rejoices with the truth. So in other words, Paul is saying, you know what? Sometimes when you Corinthians come together uh, and you interact with one another, some of you are actually rejoicing 
and having glee and celebrating over unrighteousness in the church and unrighteous things you're doing. That is unthinkable. Unrighteousness, verse 6. Uh, the opposite of righteous. Righteous is a very common word in the New Testament. It's a generic word. has a lot of different nuances to it. To be righteous, for the most part, just means to do things that are right, that please God. It's the opposite of wrong. And just about every time in the New Testament, it has a moral overtone to it. And Paul's saying, hey, Corinthians, don't be rejoicing and having glee and celebrating uh, wrong things, unrighteous things, immoral things, things that God frowns upon. Here, God frowns upon it and you're being happy about it. How, how is that possible? Don't do that. That's totally contrary to being a Christian and living for Christ. So he just takes the word righteous and puts a letter A on the front of it, which makes it the opposite of. Dikaia is the Greek word. Unrighteousness. Don't rejoice in unrighteousness. But rather, instead, do the opposite. Rejoice with the truth. Rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in that which is right, not in that which is wrong. And like I said, righteousness. Uh, so don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. Or another way to say it is don't rejoice in wickedness, but rejoice in Righteousness, rejoice in right behavior, rejoice in right thinking, rejoice in what pleases God with respect to spiritual and moral truth. And in the Corinthian assembly, we've already seen where the Corinthians were actually rejoicing in unrighteous, godless behavior. So there are many synonyms for unrighteousness, and they include godlessness or being ungodly, wickedness. Like I said, it's just a generic word. So you could put all those in there. Love does not rejoice in wickedness sinfulness, ungodly behavior, spiritual compromise, that which is the opposite of truth, and yet you Corinthians are doing it. Examples Paul's already addressed where they were rejoicing in unrighteousness. They were rejoicing in having too much of the sacramental wine at communion and getting drunk at church. That is godless. That is wicked. That was evil. And some of them were doing it and apparently enjoying it. And Paul is aghast. How in the world can you rejoice in that? Drunkenness is a sin let alone you defame the Lord's table by getting drunk. Wow. Where else were they rejoicing? Uh, they were rejoicing in cliquish behavior in the little clubs that they created. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I've even got a Peter fan shirt. Not all these other things they were doing, creating division in the church. They were rejoicing in that. They were boasting and celebrating in it, creating horrible division in the church. They were actually rejoicing because this is the Paul, that's kind of the phraseology he uses. They were rejoicing and celebrating over the fact that they had sexual immorality in the church of a grievous nature. And they were even broadcasting it and they're kind of proud of it. We're, we're a tolerant church, man. We'll, we'll take anybody and let them do anything. And it was uh, so despicable. Paul pointed that out and said that you, your church actually tolerates incest in the church and you publicize it. And you're okay with it. And you're celebrating it. That, that shouldn't go on in the church. That is the exact opposite of holiness, which is what God wants. And yet they're celebrating it. So just about everything uh, that Paul's already addressed, they were celebrating it at one level or another. And Paul says, true love, love mostly starting with God. God who He is is a holy God. Love Him. And as a result, we're going to submit to and have a commitment to holiness. And obedience to His Word, which is the antithesis of some of the things they were celebrating and rejoicing in and endorsing. And again, a reminder, we're thinking about, really, they had people drunk at communion? I mean, we have communion today. 
And we have uh, grape juice, Welch's. It's the best grape juice, in my opinion. If you drank too much grape juice, I don't think you're going to get drunk today. You may get a stomach ache. Um, it'd be an act of selfishness because then maybe others won't get any grape juice, but you won't get drunk. But for us, it's kind of unimaginable to think that we actually celebrated communion and people are having so much of the sacramental wine they actually got intoxicated in church. It, it boggles the mind. And this idea that there was public open incest going on in the church that was being promoted, that almost is like uh, contrary and defies imagination for us. And so it's easy for us to look down at the Corinthians and say, man, they were really bad. Those Christians, they were really bad. But we shouldn't think that way because we have the same kind of struggles and trials. And no doubt people could look at us 100 years from now and the, 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 the letter to the church at GBF with all these things that Paul would have rebuked us for. And people could maybe look back and say, really, the GBF Christians did that? Wow, I would never do that. So that's got to be the temptation we've got to be careful not to fall into here. But uh, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And I want to look specifically at defining biblically what Paul might mean by unrighteous things. Because... We are actually surrounded in a culture that is typified by unrighteousness. And, you know, because we live in this culture, it's it's our daily life. It's everywhere. It's out on the streets. It's in the grocery store. It's on television. It's on the radio. It's in our schools. It's in our politics. It is the world in which we live. And so it might be easy for us to maybe become callous to it or oblivious to it. And we don't even notice the unrighteousness that is all around us. And we become to think it's normative behavior and as a result we tolerate it and worse than tolerating it we justify it or promote it or celebrate it let me give you an example go to romans chapter one if you have your bible and i want to look at uh starting at verse 18 romans chapter one where paul literally lists and defines what unrighteousness specifically looks like in a pagan culture we live in a pagan culture here in northern california and the bay area in which we live is just about as bad as the culture of the Corinthians because people don't change with time. People are the same. Sometimes they try to hide their sin differently or redefine it, but people are the same. And here Paul is going to give examples of what righteous, this unrighteousness looks like in the culture. And so as you're going through and reading how he describes Rome in their day, the Romans, uh, it's also a good description of what Corinth was like in the Corinthians day. It's also a great description of what it's like in our culture today. And he says in verse 18, so follow along for the wrath of God. God is angry. God is a holy God. He is angry. What's he angry at? He's angry at sin. Present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. It is being poured out present tense continually. God is angry. He's a holy God. He is pouring out his judgment and wrath on planet earth from heaven. It's a supernatural wrath. It's a deserved wrath. It's a holy wrath. It comes from God. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is perfect. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness all over earth and all unrighteousness of men. There it is, unrighteousness. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 13.6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. God is angry at unrighteousness. God is judging unrighteousness. He is right now pouring His wrath out on unrighteousness. Some Christians might say, and I've heard it repeated over the years, boy, do you think America is going to get so bad that at some point God is going to pour His wrath out on America? Newsflash! He's not going to pour out his wrath. He is pouring out his wrath. It says it right here. The wrath of God is being poured out against all ungodliness. It's not just in America. It's all over the world, wherever it exists. 
and wherever it's being practiced. Against all ungodliness, that's just a generic word for ungodly behavior, and unrighteousness. Those two words are used as synonyms. So what is unrighteousness? It is ungodliness. And then this chapter ends with that same word, ungodliness. Between those two uh, bookends, if you will, he gives all these descriptions and other synonyms of what unrighteousness is and what it looks like. Well, let's look at it. What is unrighteous, ungodly behavior? Well, it's the, ungod- it's the unrighteousness of men. That means of humanity, of sinful humanity. The behavior and the attitudes that typify people who are not Christians. If not overtly on the outside all the time, definitely on the inside, in their mind and in their heart. And they suppress, unbelievers suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness because of their sin. They know the truth because they have a moral conscience they were created with by God. Every human being has a conscience. There's a moral barometer there. And unbelievers suppress or literally stand upon and resist the truth of God. And they do it in righteousness because they love their sin, according to Jesus in John 3, 18. So they're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, verse 19, because that which is known about God, their conscience, the fact that he exists, is evident within them in their soul because they were made in God's image. For God made it evident to them when they he brought them into this world. Verse 20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and his divine nature, the fact that he is deity and that he exists, they have been clearly seen even by unbelievers, even by atheists. There's no such thing as a legitimate true atheist. They know. They have a conscience. They're just suppressing the truth. They're lying about God's existence. For even though they... uh, and they know that he exists. They know that he is deity. They've, they have it on the inside through conscience. They see it on the outside through creation. God's fingerprints are there, have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made. So they are without excuse. So unbelievers can't make an excuse as to, well, I didn't know God exists because I don't have any proof. Yeah, you do. You have a conscience that God gave you. It starts there. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, what does that mean? They didn't know him personally, intimately through Christ or through the gospel. They knew God existed. They know he's the creator. They know they came from him. They know they're accountable to him. They know that he's the judge. And that's why every person on planet earth, if they are honest with you, they fear death because they fear death because with death comes judgment from the creator. So even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, as the Christian God or give him thanks, but rather they became foolish. Moronic is the Greek word in their thinking, their thought life, their speculations and their attitudes and their foolish heart was darkened spiritually. Verse 20, they become arrogant, professing to be wise. These are unbelievers. A diagnosis Paul is giving. They become fools. Verse 23, they become foolish by false religion that they engage in. That's verse 23. They exchange exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image for idolatry. That's man-made religion. That's what every unbeliever resorts to inevitably is idolatry in one form or another. That's what he means in verse 23. They exchange the incorruptible God who is a spirit who is manifest in Christ and instead they will follow a man-made religion usually in the form of some kind of idolatry for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so they worship the creation rather than the creator. And that's what we see in environmentalism today of an idolatrous Sort, verse 24, therefore God gave them over in their lusts. This is a form of God's judgment. Okay, fine. You don't want to follow your conscience. You don't want to listen to the warnings. You don't want to listen to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. You just want to continue to put your fist in the face of God. Okay, God will eventually give you over as he gave Pharaoh over to your own devices. And that's what he does in verse 24. Therefore, God will give the unbeliever over into their lusts and their hearts to impurity. 
to a point that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So they engage in all kinds of gross behavior, including sexual immorality. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There it is. False worship. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is God blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over again to degrading passions. This has to do with uh, immoral sexual behavior. By the way, immoral sexual behavior is on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of all of unrighteousness that men can get involved in. And there is a progression down and a spiral down to that level of sin, sexual immorality. It's pretty much the bottom. And that's where humanity is headed as they continue to reject God. And that's where every individual is headed eventually as they continue to reject God again and again and again and again over the course of their life as they resist their conscience and they resist their conscience and then they also resist objective forms of rebuke or truth or wooing from God over the course of their life. And as they continue to do that, they are hardening themselves, spiraling down against God. Verse 26, for this reason, God will give them over to degrading Passions, what kind of passions that has to do with sexuality for women will exchange natural function for that which is unnatural. Women will become lesbians. That's exactly what this is talking about. Verse 27. And in the same way, also men abandon the natural function. The natural function is for a man to marry a woman. That would be the natural thing. They're going to abandon that in the same way. Also, the men abandoned the natural function of the man and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's homosexuality, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And that becomes true of some sinners. A seared conscience, we call it, or a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper. And so they get to a point where they have no conscience whatsoever and they can engage in the most uh, gross and sinful behavior and not even wink or blink or turn red about it. They're not embarrassed by it whatsoever because they have no shame. Their conscience is seared. And actually they've gone from being shamed to having a seared conscience to now uh, welcoming that immoral behavior and even promoting it and celebrating it. That's the progression of sin. And we have that in our culture. Where do we have this kind of behavior? Uh, well, let me finish verse uh, 28. A depraved mind to those things that are not proper being filled. Here's that key word again. They're filled with all unrighteousness. It's the same word in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice, celebrate, tolerate unrighteousness. But they are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, inventors of evil. Uh, we invent evil like we've never had in the history of the world with modern technology, right? We've got the Internet, which can be used for good and for missions and for communicating love and godly principles and biblical truth. But you can also use the Internet and that kind of technology to promote all kinds of gross sin, including pornography, probably the biggest money-making industry on planet Earth today. So that inventors of evil disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and all, and get this, and then here's the progression of sin once again. We've gone from uh, knowing what was naturally correct and wrong because God gave us a conscience when we were born, and then we continue to resist our conscience and resist and suppress the truth, that we become hardened and callous and depraved, and then we become to have a seared conscience, and so we engage more and more in sin, and then we need more and more of that sinful behavior to satisfy us to the point where we have no conscience whatsoever, and then we welcome wholeheartedly welcome that sinful behavior, then we begin to promote that sinful, wicked behavior. And then we begin literally to say that which is right is wrong and condemn that which is good and virtuous. 
That's the flip-flop. That's the spiral of sin in humanity. That is what Paul is describing here. It's all under the umbrella or rubric of unrighteousness. Verse 31, without understanding, unworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Verse 32, here's the key or the crescendo, the coup de grace. And although they know the ordinance of God, because every human being is a moral being made in his image with a conscience that they have defied, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Every single unrighteous uh Synonym he just gave is deserves the death penalty from God's point of view. Not just murder. Murder deserves the death penalty from God's point of view. But also notice gossip, envy, slander. According to God, all of those deserve the death penalty. And you might be thinking, wow, I've, I've gossiped, I've slandered, I've envied. Am I, do I deserve the death penalty? And the answer is yes. So do I. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely Die. That's the verdict of a holy God. So every sin warrants the death penalty. So, in other words, I shouldn't be standing here today. I would have been dead and executed by God in His holy justice time and time again apart from His intervening grace through Jesus Christ and His blessed gospel. So I deserve the death penalty for every sin I've ever committed. And God isn't just going to withhold the death penalty. The death penalty is going to be enacted. Physical death, eternal death, spiritual death. God's going to enact the penalty. And He did for me when He executed Jesus Christ on my behalf. Jesus Christ took my death penalty as my substitute. And that's why I can stand here today. Because somebody died and paid the penalty for me. The almighty, blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you know Him personally, He's done the same for you. Isn't that, a, isn't that good news? That is the good news. Totally forgiven. Thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, the, and so God turned all of His wrath and His hatred towards sin that He has here and He poured it all on Jesus the night that Jesus died on the cross or the day that Jesus died on the cross. So that anybody who believes that Jesus is the Savior, God isn't going to redirect His wrath towards them as an individual. But He pours it on Jesus as the substitute. So we can bypass this penalty through the grace of God by His execution of Jesus Christ. Jesus never sinned. He died for sinners. Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same wicked behaviors, get this, they also heartily approve those who practice them. So getting back to love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That should never be true of a Christian. We shouldn't be rejoicing in unrighteous, ungodly, wicked, unbiblical behavior. We rejoice with the truth. We don't give approval to it. Um, and that's a challenge for us today because uh, it's everywhere. Sometimes, And so we can't tolerate it. We can't make excuses for it. We can't allow it. We can't promote it. We can't be entertained by it. And unfortunately, a lot of entertainment in the world that we actually allow and tolerate and even pay money to go see is actually unrighteous, ungodly, wicked behavior that we tolerate. So that's, that's a challenge for us in the culture in which we live. We've got to examine our lives. Um, I was talking to a Christian who's uh, about the Academy Awards, which I don't watch anymore, but I did growing up. And when they wore clothes, the Academy Awards, uh, they, well, they wore clothes when I grew up, when I used to watch it. And you had respectable people. I mean, like Bob Hope would be the host. And I mean, he wasn't a Christian, but he wasn't a deplorable, uh, despicable, foul-mouthed son of a gun who stood there half-naked during the show. He had some common decency. 30, 40 years ago. And so then I just saw a clip of this year's Academy Awards where the host came out uh, in his underwear, his Fruit of the Loom underwear and dress shoes and I, I don't know, a bow tie or something. And I was just like, 
I mean, why should I, why should I even be aghast or surprised or shocked by anything that Hollywood does anymore? I mean, so, I mean, really, we shouldn't. I mean, so it's like, are they going to reach rock bottom? Well, yeah, eventually, and just wearing underwear. So I'm not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but probably in the next five years, the host will come out. Yes, you said it without clothes. That's just how immoral. And so I'm talking to the uh, fellow believer, and I said that was despicable. And they were like, really? Why, why is that? And so I had to explain to them because of the culture in which they live and have been raised. Well, actually, it was shameful. It was deplorable. It was uh, totally unbiblical. Uh, it was mocking morality. Um, this is not appropriate. So I had to kind of give a basic Bible lesson because they literally sincerely wanted to know why on television in the Academy Awards, some man walking out just about naked, why that's inappropriate or contrary to the Bible. So, uh, which is a good reminder that that is the culture in which we live, uh, being a product of this corrupt culture sometimes dulls our senses or our um, discernment in these areas. Okay, so going back to 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather rejoices with the truth. So it's one thing to not tolerate wickedness and put up with it, but it's another extra step towards pleasing God by uh, promoting the opposite, promoting truth. Okay, I'm not going to tolerate wicked behavior, but in contrast, I'm going to promote truth. Or I'm not going to tolerate wicked behavior. Actually, you know what? I'm going to expose and condemn and speak against wicked behavior. Ooh, that's risky because that might get you in trouble as a Christian. Somebody might call you a name. They might call you a Pharisee or a legalist or judgmental or loving, unloving or a fundamentalist. That's the worst one. I don't know if you've ever been called a fundamentalist, but they're getting really bad if they do that. That's below the belt in terms of criticisms. Um, that's okay. Jesus will bless you for legitimate uh, persecution in the world. So keep that in mind. So that's, that's love. And that's love first to God is preserving His truth, standing up for His truth, standing up for what is right, defending it in the world wherever you are, even get this among family members on holidays. Whew. That's challenging. That is challenging. Now you've got to do it with tact and love and prayer and wisdom. And sometimes the wisest thing is to whoosh, say nothing. Or get up and leave. So you need God's wisdom in those situations, but act courageously in true love, first and foremost, to your God and your Savior, the one who saved your soul. And you're going to represent Him faithfully, and you're not going to let people mock Him by just spewing relentlessly unrighteousness or living it in front of your eyes. You're going to rejoice with the truth. You're going to stand by the Bible. You're not going to be embarrassed by the Bible. You're not going to make excuses for the Bible. You're not going to be ashamed of the Bible. Yeah, that's really what it says. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, it really did make Adam. Yeah, Adam was made out of dirt. That's impossible. I know, God, he's amazing. He does miracles. Isn't that cool? You can't have a human made out of a rib. Yeah, well, I know, but God did it, so he's bigger than me and you. That's awesome. I want to worship that kind of a God. Mm-hmm. So, and you just go all the way through the Bible. That needs to be the attitude of the Christian. Just this simple faith towards the truth. Uh, we rejoice in that truth. Uh, we are blessed by that truth. We are not ashamed of that truth. So that's true love. We need God's help to do it. Let's go on to verse 7. These other characteristics. The last four of what love is like. These are very practical in terms of how we relate to one another. Paul says in verse 7, love bears all things. It believes all things, it hopes all things, and then it endures all things. These words are very specific. Verse 7, bears all things, says uh, the New American Standard. And then in my margin in the footnote, it says covers. So literally covers all things. That's actually the literal 
translation. Probably the best literal translation. Love covers all things. The idea is a picture. It's a, it puts a roof of a cover over something to protect it. That's what love does. One legitimate translation could be love protects all things. Or love protects people. Protects them. I think about you and your spouse go out in public and you're at a social gathering and instead of making a joke about your spouse in front of everybody and humiliating your spouse in front of everybody, uh, you don't do that because you want to protect the reputation of your spouse by covering them. Or uh, somebody speaking about your spouse or one of your kids or one of your elders in the church or another believer in the church and somebody makes a joke about them that's degrading or a criticism and they're not there to hear the criticism and they're talking about somebody behind their back. You don't tolerate it. You put a, a roof of protection over that person and you protect them and you don't engage in that behavior. So love protects. So you're going to protect the reputation of your wife, of your husband, of your siblings, of your kids. Even maybe you do have rotten kids. Uh, but as a good parent who is loving... And when people are talking about your rotten kids and the rotten kids aren't around, you're not going to, yeah, that's right, my kid, they stink and they're horrible, their parents are horrible. I mean, well, anyway, you're not going to do that. You're going to protect your children and you're not going to tolerate that as they are human beings made in the image of God who are growing and maturing and have to learn. So love protects. And so we need to do that with each other, being willing to absorb. Uh, another nuance, actually, that word love uh, covers is bears all things and that means love tolerates all things love overlooks things so you're willing to overlook idiosyncrasies of the people in your family or in your church you're not gonna let those bother you that's what love does love covers love covers a multitude of sins so that's another use of that word so we need to do that with each other so um Start by protecting those around you when you hear people talk bad about them. Don't tolerate it. Don't receive those accusations against them. Number seven, love believes all things. This comes from the basic word for believing or faith, actually. Believe all things. Now, at the very root of the, or the idea of believing or to believe and to have faith means of necessity we don't have all the information on something. If you have to believe something, that means you don't have everything readily available, and usually it might be a future reality. So you don't have all the information. So this love believes all things just simply means that uh, you're going to believe the best about that person, usually in the context of somebody else doubting them, being suspicious of them, criticizing them, talking bad about them behind their back, gossiping about them. You're not going to entertain it. You're going to believe the best about this person, especially if you don't have all the information, and when you get the information... Uh, you want to believe that it's true. So another protective measure, true love is going to believe the best in all things. And all things there is just used as a direct object um, there. So it's, it doesn't mean this gullible believing that which is not true. It's talking specifically that this is going to be your characteristic as you think about people, especially those people you know. You're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to be a suspicious person. You're not going to cave to uh, conspiracy theories. You're not going to be typified by being uh, a suspicious or untrusting person. Oh, I don't trust that person. Well, you just met them. Well, I don't care. I don't like the way they looked or smelled. Some people are like that. They are suspicious. Don't do that. That is not loving. That is not Christ-like. So love believes all things. Love is always going to, here it is, err on the side of generosity and mercy, especially when we don't have all the information. Believes all things. So this is like me as a pastor. I have when I, I have to just go with people at face value. Here's what I heard about that. Per, well, you know, here's what they told me. And this, I'm only going on what the information I have. 
In the meantime, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I have to. That's what Christ calls us to do. It's a challenge, though, but uh, we've got to aspire to that. So love bears all things or protects others around us. Love believes all things. It believes the best about people. Love hopes all things. Hope specifically is referring to the future, changing your disappointed attitude now and redirecting it to the future in light of the grace of God and how he works and how he works all things together for good and how he's totally sovereign. And as long as the grace of God is available, then there is always that hope and that possibility that something or somebody that I have a hard time with can change. That's what this means. It's looking to the future. Your disappointment, get this, with people in the future. Have you, raise your hand if you've ever, no, don't raise your hand. (laughs) Have you ever been disappointed with somebody? Yeah, we all have. And if you continue to put your faith and trust in people, you will continue to be disappointed. People are fallen. Don't put your trust ultimately in people. We are all sinners. So this talks about when you are disappointed with someone, maybe time and time again, and then you get to a point, and a lot of times this happens in families. Uh, I've done enough marriage counseling over the years. This happens routinely in marriages, even between Christian married couples who will tell me, Pastor Cliff, he's never going to change. Whoa, time out. Are you a Christian? Well, of course. Is your husband a Christian? Well, yeah. Ooh. Okay, then that can't be true. You can't make that statement. He's never going to change. That Actually, what that you know what that does? That makes God a liar. Don't want to do that. Hope's all things. You're disappointed with somebody and you believe this person can change because God is the one sanctifying them through the Holy Spirit. And when we start thinking about people need to change, first we need to think about our, ourselves. We need to change. That's the priority, actually. Don't worry about them. Let God deal with them. Uh, but it's having hope really in God. It's not a, a hope that they're, they're going to change. It's a hope that God is going to do the right thing, including my attitude. Maybe part of the hope is my attitude needs to change. I need to grow my love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. Maybe that's what needs to change. But love as a Christian hopes. You're always hoping. Christians need to live in light of the future. That's a basic Christian virtue and ethic. Christians live in light of the future always, always, always. This This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Heaven is. We're strangers here. This world has fallen. But love hopes all things, believes in God for all things, that He is in charge. He's totally in control. He knows everything. He is just. He is perfect. We're going to trust in Him as we look to the future, even in light of the people we live around. Then finally, number seven, love endures all things. Love endures all things. This is similar to the first uh, word in verse seven. Love bears all things, tolerates all the beginning, uh, love bears all things. Love tolerates the idiosyncrasies of people. Those are kind of the small irritating things in life from people. This word at the end of verse 7 actually are the big things in life. Suffering, persecution. Love endures all things. It's a specific word. It's a military word. Hupamone, to endure under, to remain enduring under uh, persecution and military assaults. And this is from the enemy, usually. And this might re- be related to suffering, persecution, usually to the enemy. It can be from someone within your own ranks with friendly fire. But uh, the idea it's of a higher uh, severity than bearing all things. This is being willing to suffer and endure persecution as a believer, being patient with people out of a love uh, that Christ reflects and produces in our own heart. Enduring, persevering, Pressing on. And maybe 
we never arrive at the goal in this life, but you will when you get to heaven. And so many of these attributes overlap and complement one another. So love endures all things. Um, and again, the all things as a direct object is uh, used to describe a general attitude. It's not talking about being naive about everything. It's not having an re- unrealistic Pollyanna attitude with no discernment. That isn't what it's referring to. But it's all things, all things, all things, repeated four times. In other words, this should be characteristic of the ethic, the worldview, and the life of a Christian in terms of how we implement love and how we view all people. Life is not easy. We live in a fallen world. And we have sin living in us. Hence, the daily battle and call out to God for help to live out these attributes of love which Christ has modeled for us so beautifully in the Gospels. Well, Paul sought to be an example for his Corinthians, uh, tolerating. He, Paul did all these things. He, he hoped all things. Uh, no doubt when he heard reports about the Corinthians, uh, waiting to get the facts. I'm not going to condemn them. Uh, I want to go find out. That's why he made visits there to go check it out. Uh, he believed in them. We get that at the beginning of the chapter in chapter 1. He was just thanking God. Man, I'm so thankful that you believed in the gospel, man. You're saved. And I had blessed memories of when I was with you as we started out as a church. I haven't given up on you. I haven't given up on God. He tolerated them. He endured with them. He was over to see. He was willing to oversee many of their small, petty idiosyncrasies. So Paul was exemplary for us. And that's why he could tell us, or he told the Corinthians, he could tell us as well, follow my example as I also follow Christ. So I would encourage all of us, starting with myself, as this study over the last three weeks has been incredibly challenging. Wow. This standard of love is just, God, this is too high. It's supernatural. I, God, I need your help. Totally inadequate, totally insufficient. And God knows that. But he can, like I said last week, he's given us the resources to actually implement this in our own lives through the power of the Spirit, being saved, knowing Christ, accountability, being in prayer, being humble, uh, being encouraged by the church, day by day, persevering, not giving up. We can do this in obedience in a way that pleases our God. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.